0: All right. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Deering Live. It's Thursday, and we're in the Deering showroom in Spring Valley, California. You can't see me today. I'm off camera, but we are joined by legends of the industry, I would say, um, Greg Deering and Janet Deering. Not normally guests on the show, but welcome. But today, we welcome Mr. Bob Taylor from Taylor Guitars. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's been a long time. We haven't seen you in a while down here. Well, except for me going with Greg and Janet to Baja a few weeks ago. That's true. How was that trip? That's no, a fun matter one. No how Baja turns out, it's wonderful. Better than, better than working? Can we say that for safely? No. no. Working's <laughs> really good. I love working. I know. But I love Baja equally. It's a, it's a great thing. You guys have been going down there for some time, huh?
1: We and haven't been on every trip. Yeah. Um, but we've been on a lot of them, and we really, really enjoy it.
0: Always seems like a great time. Well, today, you know, we wanted to get together and, you know, there's definitely some people who know the, the backstory. There's probably a lot of people that don't. So we thought we'd invite Bob down and we could we could have a chat about um, the, the old days and the journeys. You're, you're two hugely respected builders and companies and brands within the, the musical instruments industry. Um, and uh, I want to hear all about it. So I think we'll start off, I mean, you guys came out of what was called the American Dream. Um, for those at home who don't know, can you tell us what the American Dream was in its essence? What, what was it all about?
1: Well, the American Dream originally was a music store on College Avenue that was ran by Sam and Gene Radding. And Gene, they were brothers, Gene ran a little retail shop in the front and Sam made guitars in the back. And, uh, but Sam wanted to have his own shop that was more than on the back of a store. And he got two other partners to join with him, a guy named Lee Fulmer and Bob Morrissey, who was called Captain Bob because he'd been a captain in the Army. And um, they decided to um, open a shop in Lemon Grove. And I was lucky to get to know Sam and Lee Fulmer really well because we were in the same wood shop class at San Diego State. And they told me, we got a shop. We got a shop. It's in Lemon Grove, and we're going to get the key um, this Thursday, and at noon. And we're going to start building workbenches and doing wiring. So at noon, I was out there when um, Don Minick, the landlord, handed the key to the three of them, and. I wasn't invited. I just showed up <laughs> and just started helping build benches and run wiring. And they um, heard somebody say, we don't want to redo, do repair work. What are we going to do about repair work? And I thought, mm-hmm. I said, I'll do repair work. And they said, "Oh, that would be wonderful. So they let me be part of it.
2: How old were you? 20? 20
1: 20? 20, um, 21. Mm. 21. No, no. No, I was nineteen. Yeah, it's I, like it. yeah. I was nineteen. Yeah, nineteen. So that, so they started to build guitars with three partners, called it the American Dream. So there was an American Dream store because Gene kept that going, but the American Dream shop was separate. And uh, Lee Fulmer and Captain Bob eventually left, and Sam ended up being the owner.
0: Okay,
1: because he's a kind of a Renaissance man and a kind of a Geppetto and is. Really a craft guy extraordinaire, and 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 uh, was a wonderful thing to be part of. So I started with them in May of 1970.
0: May of 1970. Now, Bob, this was before you came in, right? You weren't in the in, in the first. Yeah, it days. was fun hearing the story there from Grandpa. <laughs> 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 oh, is this like how this is going to go. Four
2: years older than me. Yeah. And so when American Dreams started, I was. Still in high school, and I made my first guitar in 11th grade high school, wood shop. So, how old are you then? 16, 17, yeah. turning 17. Do you remember the guitar? Yeah, I totally remember the guitar. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a 12 string guitar. I traced the shape of my friend's Yamaha body on it, and I made an. I, I made it kind of the way a classical guitar was constructed with slipped sides into a neck, because I could only find one book on how to build a guitar back in those days. And it was how to build a classical guitar. And so I built that in Woodshop. And I didn't really know how to get material. Like I would look at rosettes on guitars and look at binding and wonder what it is. Is it a decal? Is it a real piece of plastic? How did they put it in there? And then the fret wire was a mystery to me. And there was a place called the Blue Guitar. It was down in Old Town. It was in Old Town, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, and Eurus ran it. He was a good guitar builder. Um, and I went down there for my first guitar. And it was he was a curmudgeon, I'll tell you that. And, um, and I went in and I said, I'd, I'd like to... Buy some fret wire standing behind them. What are you going to do?
1: Ruin your guitar?
2: You know, (laughs) that
1: that was probably Ed Douglas. (laughs) Could have been.
2: Anyways, I bought this um, fret wire and I learned how to put it in. And then by the time I'd made my second guitar, I made two more guitars and a banjo in high school. And then I discovered the American Dream. So that was, or in 12th grade in high school. And um, by the time I discovered the American Dream through the phone book, I guess. I well, rode out there on my motorcycle. No, maybe you told me about it.
1: Yeah, the the, the first time Bob and I met, I played music a lot in church and in various places around town with the group where we used our our last names for the name of the group. And the group was called Deering, Learned, and Prim Prim. So there was two Prims. They were brothers, and they went to the same school that Bob did. And one day, Bob or John and Tony Prim said... Uh, there's a new kid in school who plays a banjo. I didn't want to hear about that. <laughs> I showed up at John and Tony's house one day to practice, and here's Bob sitting on the couch. And I, and you played pretty well. I asked you how long you've been playing, and you said about six months. And I've been playing at that point for eight or nine years, and he's better than me.
2: <laughs> Probably so not that's, anymore.
1: That, that's when we first met. And that's, I told him about the American Dream, and it wasn't a week or two when you were out at the American Dream.
2: Yeah, I found out you could buy fret wire, and you could get binding and purfling. And, and by then, I was partway into a guitar where I was doing fancy banjo-style inlays because I bought a book written by Earl Scruggs mm-hmm. called How to Play the Five-String Banjo. It's a classic book, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I learned a lot from that and then from a local teacher. really turned on when I took lessons from Walt Richard. And uh, boy, the light came on, and uh, and you guys just recently saw. A vault. I mean, probably in the last year or something, I guess.
1: Just a few weeks ago. A few weeks
2: ago. So, um, in the back of that book was how to build a five-string banjo, and I started. I learned about the inlays, but I didn't realize you could buy mother of pearl and little gauged pieces. So I would catch abalone in the ocean and then bust the stuff up and grind it down flat and grind it to the other side. And so wow. my, I'd grind through the color and get to the pearloid part, which yeah. isn't as white as, say, oyster shell. Right. 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 It's more fleshy colored. But, so one of those guitars was completely inlaid with that. I still have that guitar. It's in our showroom. Um, and... The other one was Mother of Pearl that I bought from the American Dream. Wow, you can buy wow. this stuff, and it was whiter or sparkly. Yeah, really nice. The real deal. Yeah. yeah, and that and then that's where Greg and I met some more.
0: I went over there, and and you ended up being a part of the American Dream. I did for for a few years. I did. I mm-hmm. well, we bought the American.
2: I started working at the American Dream and working as a Very loose term. (laughs) It was it was a co-op kind of arrangement, right? Yeah, I hardly even qualify for a co-op. It (laughs) was a hangout, and you could get some money now and then, you know. (laughs) But yes, it was a co-op, and the way that it worked is Sam Radding owned the place. He paid the rent. He paid the overhead. Yeah, and we had guitars. You could buy a Dreadnought or a Jumbo, a Maple You know, we didn't have models. It's a Rosewood Dreadnought. I mean, Correct. that's what we called them. And there was bass prices for these guitars, a guitar that functions, dots on the fingerboard, binding on it. And then you could upsell abalone rosette, abalone on the top, inlays. We didn't do cutaways or pickups or anything like that back then. And so Sam would split the base price so you build a, in those days my half of a base price was $163 okay. for a rosewood guitar and Sam got the other 163 and then if I was able to add two or $300 worth of pearl work or something fancy to it then I would get to keep all of that it was actually a good deal for the builders
1: yeah. and there was
2: no time schedule it was a we had a sofa that was filled with sunflower seeds and <laughs> you know we would sit down and eat it and Greg had a bench with spray paint graffiti over it that said, get my darn banjo done,
1: (laughs) 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 being I was the official acoustic repairman from day one. I was a repairman. We had another gentleman, Bob Huff, that did the electric repair work. And my arrangements with Sam is I named my own prices on the um, repair work. And I, at the end of each month, I would give 20% of what I took in to Sam. And during that time, I built a few guitars and a number of banjos. And again, I had to give 20% of anything I took in to Sam. Got it. So in that respect, it was kind of co op because Sam owned it. But we all had to put in a certain amount to keep things paid.
0: And a lot of people may or may not know, but there was a number of characters in, in that shop that kind of came out and became more or less household names in our world. Well, one uh, one day this guy kept showing up, asking questions, and
2: then he finally, his name was James Goodall, mm-hmm. and um, he lived around the corner, down the street. He went to school with Larry Breedlove <laughs> and Kim Breedlove, <laughs> yeah. and there. And his mom taught art, right? Yeah. And Tim LaRanc, who was with us, he was part of your company and my company for his whole career. Um, he, they were all on Little League together. So it was just...
1: Yeah, Tim, Tim Larank and Larry and Kim were neighbors right over on the hill over here.
2: That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from right where this is. Right right uh-huh. over the hill. Oh, they went to that little church that was at the top of the hill, Trinidad or yeah. something. And, um, and so James wanted to learn how to make a guitar and wanted to know what that would cost. And Sam... Was like, well, someone want to teach him how, and oh, well, I'll teach him how. I mean, I was I was eighteen years old, yeah, right, and I'd made eight guitars. And James wasn't about a couple of years older than me, but he did oil paintings, okay. and so he traded an oil painting that we hung on the wall. It was a landscape. He he's really good at it. James is a really good craftsman. Yeah. He also makes. Flutes. wind instruments, flutes, he really, and recorders. And he plays in an orchestra. He, he's a, he's a professional-grade Baroque flautist, right? I didn't and, know that. Yeah. And um, for a painting, we saw, I took the lead, but we showed him how to get his guitar made, and he was off and running.
0: Yeah, and that's amazing. And
2: then Breed Loves ended up, really, they came into the scene when... After well, Jeff Stelling showed up, and, what,
1: the way the breed love happened is when we started building banjos for Jeff Stelling. Um, without having to tell that whole story, um, my first, um, our first employee was Tim mm-hmm. Um When he was at the Dream, he was a major hippie a surfer.
2: I took his bench. And um, remember, he had gone to Bogota because he went to Hawaii South surfing.
1: America. <laughs> And he came back, and somewhere in there he found religion, found Erica, and grew up almost overnight. We hired him. And a few months into to building with, with Tim, Tim came to me and said, uh, one of my next-door neighbors is an art student at San Diego State. And he's looking for a job. Well, send him over. And he came over and showed me his artwork. And I uh, took one look at it, hired him on the spot, and that was Larry Breedlove. And then um, not too long after that, Larry goes, my brother's looking for work. And Kim brought over some of his stuff and showed it to me, so Kim came on board. Mm-hmm. So,
2: It's staggering. And timeline-wise, I started working at the American Dream in September of 73, three months after I graduated from high school. Wow. I'd made three guitars by the time on my own, started there and started getting commissions. You know, we'd someone, a guitar, would get assigned to me or I'd volunteer to do that. And worked with Greg in that shop. We got to know each other. And then by January or something, you guys were, boom, met, married and gone.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> we
1: got engaged in September, right when he started the dream. And we got married in January. And Janet had a job for a while in
3: Washington, D.C., so boom, we were gone. But I did get to work at the American Dream for one afternoon. Did you? It was a date. Greg had me over I'd known him since I was thirteen. I'd admired him for years. So anyway, he had me over to the American Dream and he had Charlie Benson's guitar and he was he was needing to put abalone around the top. Mm. And Greg said, Would you mind doing that? And I, I'd taken wood shop and I loved crafts classes. So I said, Yeah, I'll learn. So he showed me how to, you know, shape the abalone to fit in the slots and I did Curly Benson's guitar while he was working on other repair work. So I had one fun afternoon. I loved doing it.
2: Curly Benson. Boy, that's a name yeah, well I that, hadn't thought of for a long time.
1: <laughs>
3: that was not a
1: guitar I built. That was a repair job. It was a an old D28 that he'd run over with his car. Yep. Had, he was a and the body was, was intact, but the neck was gone, so I made a new neck. And while we had the neck off, he asked us if we couldn't put ab binding on the top, so we did. got that one all done there was a
2: bunch of good musicians that hung out there yeah Uh, jeff stelling was a pretty red hot banjo player Mm -hmm. and susan rosenthal was a great singer and played and gary um
1: francisco
2: francisco was a fiddle player who ended up in disneyland
1: still still works there
2: he's farley the fiddler in disneyland he did a full career working in the advent where Country Bear Jammerley is—is that, is that yeah. Land or something? Yep. And he he walks around as a minstrel and plays fiddle and talks to people. Wow! And, and um, there is a bunch of other people that ended up with illustrious music careers from those. We call them the Dream Days. The Dream Days. Some great yeah. songwriters like Alan Lomax, who. Um, you know his his music didn't go out to the world, but it could have. It was that good. Really
1: good. I'm still working on getting it. I've got um, his original demo record, and he originally put remastered that and put it on the CD, and and I send those out to
2: people. They're so good. He could sit here right now and write a song in front of you in real time, and it would be good. Wow! Just make it up as he goes. He's he was he was that good at it. And Steve Hilliard played bass, and Bob Huff was a good guitar player, and. Mike Thompson played keyboards, and he ended up being a very successful LA musician, playing with the Eagles and people like that. And and so, wow! So that was a, it was a neat time. But that was September, and by October, the next year, me and Kurt and Steve yeah. bought that business from Sam, and it became.
0: Westland Music Company. See, I was just going to throw the piece of trivia in because I just learned it myself. Yeah. But <laughs> Westland uh, and, Music and, was before and, Taylor Guitars.
1: Talking about the celebrities, yeah. the first big, at the time, was just kind of minor, but a, a group that was not as big as they were to get, but it was opening for other bands, came, the whole band showed up at the American Dream and ordered a guitar. And that was Emerson, Lank, and Palmer. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Look at that. they were playing in town, opening for somebody, and they heard about this guitar shop. And
0: Amazing.
2: It was, there's better guitar shops nowadays than that. <laughs> yeah. Our, our benches were made from two-by-fours. Our tools came from the hardware store. But our wood came from the lumber store. There wasn't really anything specialized. But it was, it was a place, and something really happened there. I mean, Deering happened there.
0: Taylor happened there. Taylor, Goodall, Breedlove, Stelling—all these. When I first came to Deering, I hadn't heard this story, and I heard kind of like, like, really, there was this one place where all this stuff came from. It's like, Mm -hmm. wow, it was mind blowing. What was what was the atmosphere like? Were you guys kind of helping each other out and kind of mentoring one another in in a sense, or was it in a
1: sense? It wasn't like any of us knew everything about what we were doing. Yeah, it's kind of a discovery
2: time, I'm sure, for all of you. Greg was an industrial arts student when you could be an industrial arts student when there was such a mm -hmm. when there was such a course and degree that you could take and Greg taught me some of the very first things about machines that became a real backbone to what we do and once I started learning about just a few techniques to copy things to you know have a pattern on a shaper and you run it and he taught me what a shaper was. I'm like, wow, who's been keeping this for me? <laughs> and I couldn't afford one. So I found a, a little kit from a company called Gilbuilt and for nineteen dollars you could buy this cast aluminum half inch diameter shaper spindle okay. through the mail order. And then I built a plywood box and we had a we had a company behind us, a small shop that our landlord owned, and he made Formica countertops and installed them in kitchens. Okay. And when he'd we call them sink cutouts because when he would cut out for a big double sink, this drop would come out, so it would be a piece of particle board with Formica on it, and we made our whole factory. We made lots of stuff out we of We made our factory out of sink cutouts. We'd get them for free.
1: <laughs> I, I made a really nice steel top gill built that we used for 20 years. I still have it sitting above the office. We don't use it anymore. Yeah.
2: I, I made two of them with plywood boxes and washing machine motors and a couple of spindles on it and I started making jigs to shape a brace or shape a neck or something like
1: that. I learned a lot from Bob too. It was getting towards Christmas time in um, 73 and Bob was working on making a grandmother's clock. Was it for your mom or your grandma? Your grandma or your mom I think. My mom, yeah. For Christmas. And I walked into the the room where he was working on it, and he was walking around looking kind of perplexed. And he said, what are you doing, Bob? And he goes, I've got to clamp the top on this clock. I'm trying to figure out how to do it. Not too long later, I walked back in the room, and he had the top on it. And he had, like, two bags of cement and a five-gallon can of lacquer. <laughs> and I said, boy, that'll take care of it. And he goes, yeah. I got tired of trying to figure it out, and I just did it. <laughs> so I learned a lot. You know, there's there's more than whether to just machines, but there's there's an art to knowing how to get things done.
0: It's definitely definitely part of both of your uh, approach to things, I think. What what inspired you both to start building instruments? I mean, Greg, I know your story, but for maybe for those at home and then and Bob as well, I'm sure you've got your own uh, approach to like what what drove you to start building musical instruments in the first place?
1: Well, I I'd, I'd always been prone to make things. My dad had taught me to be a good craftsman. Taught me to be a good draftsman and a designer. And I got to the point where I wanted a better banjo and couldn't afford it. And um, had the opportunity to take a woodshop class at San Diego State and been in love with it ever since. And San Diego State put me in a, that first shop class that I took, woodshop class, to build my banjo. Sam Ratting and Lee Fulmer were in that class. So it put me in the right place at the right time.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, and I went to school when they had great shop classes. So seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. I was in industrial arts classes, and I was good at them. And I had a couple good teachers. One of them was in junior high, in eighth and ninth grade, and I took metal shop. And I made, I made stuff when I was fourteen years old that I think would be illegal for you, a fourteen-year-old kid, to make now because you'd have to heat something up red hot and you'd have to you know you'd have to do stuff but this yeah. teacher would come in on weekends so that I could work on my projects he taught me a, a whole lot his name was Mr Labastida, and um, I was also interested in guitar I got a little electric guitar t- 12 bucks from Bed Mart a you know, little place that became Price Club that became Costco you wow! Know, way back when, yeah. put my black diamond strings on it and tried to play along the records when I was 12 years old, yeah. and then I uh, had an I had a little acoustic guitar that I wanted to make into an electric guitar, so I sawed the neck off and went to the boys' club and fashioned some kind of body, and then I would just go to the music store apex music i'd ride my bike up there and they would have these pick cars with a yeah. little pickup in it i didn't know what a single coil was what a humbucker was i didn't know what a martin was i didn't know what a fender was i didn't know what a gibson was i didn't know anything about anything as far as i was concerned i was the only person in the world who thought about guitars there wasn't anybody else that I knew to ask. But they had this thing in there. It cost 35 bucks, and I didn't have $35. I had no idea about a bridge or any other hardware. Well, I was too young to finish that project, because I was maybe 12. And then I bought a guitar for $39. It was made by Coronet, which is a Japanese company that mostly makes woodwind, mm-hmm. brass and woodwind instruments. But they were selling Japanese guitars, and I, it was $39. And when I think back on it, It was a copy of a Gibson Hummingbird. But I had no idea it was a copy of a Gibson Hummingbird. I didn't know what a Hummingbird was or a Gibson. (laughs) And I played that guitar, and it was fun. And then I wanted a 12-string guitar. I went down to the store, and they had this guitar. It was an Echo Ranger, EKO. I think they're made in Finland or something. And it had a... Italy, I think. Italy. And it had a neck bolted on, like a fender neck bolted on Mm -hmm. with no heel. (laughs) and it had a thick polyester finish like a surfboard, but it had a skinny, skinny neck and 12 strings and you could play it. And I'd been listening to John Denver and Gordon Lightfoot and people who played 12-string guitars. I wanted that bad. And $179? No way did I have that money. Well, I'd already won the California State Exposition in Sacramento twice in a year in 8th and ninth grade with my metal projects. Wow. And I had taken a whole year of metal shop again in high school, 10th grade. So I was in 11th grade now. And I thought, you know what? I think I'll just build a guitar. And, and so I did. I switched out of auto shop, went into wood shop, met my teacher there, who was a great teacher. He just sat back and let me work. And um, gave me a few resources. He's the one who gave me the book, Classical Guitars Construction by Irving Sloan. Yeah. And I was hooked it was i realized this is what i'm going to do i have to do it i don't want to do anything else but this there's no other choice but this and i stopped
0: all of my effort towards becoming good at anything else wow i didn't realize your stories were quite so close like you both had the same you wanted something really bad you couldn't quite get there financially so you just went about figuring out how to build it for yourself.
2: That's how I I got almost every toy I had in my life, bicycles, bow and arrows, I just built this stuff. That's amazing. I
1: I had a lot of shop experience, not as much as Bob. I took all the shop classes in junior high. In the ninth grade, I got the Outstanding Industrial Arts Student Award for the school. Mm -hmm. Um, It was fun for me. When I took drafting, I was already a good enough draftsman, I could have taught the class in the eighth grade. Um, I remember
2: when I went and joined Woodshop, teacher said, "Okay, we're going to spend the next two weeks in the classroom. I wanted to build a guitar. But my teacher, Mr. Labastida, when I would enter into the fair, he required me that I made a storyboard of how my project was made. So I'd have to make my project like three times or four times to actually clamp actual pieces of the project And, and it wasn't an ice cream scoop it was a jeweler's vice With you know I mean it was kind of amazing stuff that I made when I was 14 or 15 And but he also caused me or required that I do complete drafting and I'd taken drafting so I came in the next day to my teacher
0: yeah.
2: um, and and I said Mr. Kaiser I know you're going to spend the next two weeks in here learning how to draw and I'm like But what about this? You know, it's kind of like, you know, it's just like, what do you think of this? And so he's looking at isometric views and then top views and side views and end views and bills of material and the whole entire thing, which I'd learned at junior high. And he goes, Well, I don't see why you need to learn this. Go on outside and shop. And I started working. That's awesome. And so
0: it, it was a natural step for me to. The American Dream was out there waiting for me. Yeah, seems like it was for both of you. Are there, are there any, as you kind of developed, you went through that kind of journey of discovery and techniques and trying to figure this stuff out, are there any techniques that you, or processes that you picked up during that time that you both uh, still use today as far as maybe on, on the factory floor that you've implemented or anything like
1: that, or well, was it? Well, Bob referred to shapers. Mm-hmm. When we, most of the years of the American Dream We didn't know anything about shapers, but there was a picture in the Martin catalog of them shaping a pay cut on a shaper, and I spent hours and hours looking at that, going, "What is that machine?" And back then there was no internet to go research, so go to the library and find books and try to find out what that was and find out what a shaper was. Well, tool catalogs, yeah. We. And so the shaper was the first thing that we all assimilated. But during the American dream, when we sanded tops and backs and sides down, we did it with a handheld belt sander. And we'd lose wood, because that's a very imprecise way of doing it. And I theorized, there's got to be a sander that's like a planer. And I found La Mesa Lumber had an old, old antiquated sander. I took some wood over there and darned if it didn't work. But we didn't know you could go buy them. And it was years before Bob and Kurt, well, no, well then we found Universal Caseworks, found an alcohol that had a real one that was a modern one. And we'd take stuff down and have them sanded. Rent time. And then Bob and Kurt were the first ones to get their own sander. So things like that were a real milestone.
2: I'd say. When I had to bend my sides, I needed a side bender, but you couldn't buy a side bending iron. There was no... Stuart McDonald in those days sold J-hooks.
1: Banjo parts.
2: <laughs> and tone rings. Banjo parts. they sold back then. Mm-hmm. Wow. And th- th- we didn't have tools or anything like that, and so I took a four-inch pipe. I knew how to do metal work, and I welded a cap on it, and I put a little, you know, strap iron on it so it could bolt to a a uh bench yeah. and i stuck a electric barbecue lighter squeeze it down stuck it in there and turned it on and that's why i've got my first guitar sights on the guitars that, that i made and that's still in our factory today so yeah that's wow. there we, we wrap rosette rings around it into big spiral rings and clip them off so it's kind of fun
1: Yeah, my first shaper.
2: I'd say it's like my grandfather's clock. If when I when it dies, I might die, or the uh, vice versa. You know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) First shaper that we got, uh, uh, you know, commercial shaper. We didn't have any money, so I opened up the yellow pages to cabinet shops. That's back when there was no cell phones and no computers, and yellow pages were a bible, and I started calling every cabinet shop. Do you have an old shaper you're not using? You do you don't know. Do you have an old shaper? And I went about two-thirds of the way through the list. And, yeah, I got this old old um, shaper that I'm not using. Um, what do you want for it? He goes, I'll take 100 bucks. <laughs> and this was the shaper made like in the 20s. And I went down and I scraped up $100. Bucks. Um, probably had to borrow some money from my folks to do it. I went down there and got that shaper. And uh, it was a really old one, and we still have it. We still, once in a while, still use it. But the first cutter I used was a split collar one with slip knives in it. Yeah, those are spooky. Yeah, <laughs> they
2: shouldn't be, but I'd they are.
1: Never run. Well, this one had serrations, t- 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 mm-hmm. serrated, so there was some way to keep it from going. But anyway, we have, none of us had ever used a big shaper with a big cutter, so we had this three-inch tall cutter, and I'm going to profile some necks. And they made this big cage, welded cage out of... It was like approaching
2: a crocodile. (laughs) That's what it felt like.
1: I put put my heavy jacket on with three phone books in there and my best gloves and my motorcycle helmet to run it because I didn't know if it was going to come apart and kill everybody in the room.
3: Yeah, we all stood back, watching, going, "What's <laughs> going to happen?" It was scary to turn that on and watch him. Uh, Jenna, that. I
0: you wanted know, to ask easy. you actually, like just from your outsider's kind of standpoint, not necessarily like coming up with the ideas, but watching, you know, Greg and and Bob and everybody else in the in the in the shop kind of come. You up know, with I was going to segue into that, so
2: oh. maybe I will. Well, Bob, I'll do your job Bob, for you. I, I would you like <laughs> my so, script? So I, fast <laughs> forward, these
0: guys <laughs> move back. They move back. They've been married for how long at this point?
1: Ten Nine, months? Yeah, yeah, okay.
2: They move back, and Greg comes in and starts doing repair work again. But he brought Janet with him, and I must say, Janet, there isn't a job in the shop that she can't learn how to do. Yeah. And so she became an instrument builder by marriage. Right? And um, so she wasn't working at the American Dream, but when Greg started doing more banjos and the Stelling thing developed you guys bought that little house in lemon grove and i don't know we i'd get me and my wife would get together over there
0: yeah
2: mm, i wasn't married until 77 but every time we were together for any type of hot dogs there was banjo and guitar neck sanding to be done <laughs> we called it back and forth just sit down and do back and forth. Back and,
3: forth. Uh, <laughs> and we did them all by hand, like you're saying. We, when orbital sanders came out, we weren't <laughs> sure if that was okay. You well, know, <laughs> <laughs> I was used to taping up my fingers and you know, doing it by hand, and we had to debate about that before we were willing to try it.
2: I have a picture somewhere of Janet sanding a neck on her porch.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: I mean, literally, if we'd go to a movie to wait in line to see Star Wars, we'd take necks with us and Sam <laughs> while we sit on the curb to be one of the first people in. You know, oh. while you, we would do that. Really? Yeah. Oh, well,
1: wow. with Sam back in the American Dream Days, he had determined that orbital sanders were not okay, that you could not use them on a musical instrument. So we spent years hand sanding everything. And at one point, making the Stelling Vangels for Jeff, I got sick and tired of it taking an hour and a half, two hours to hand sand a neck. And I'm going to go buy one of those speed blocks and I'm going to find out. And darned if it didn't work. (laughs) That was a revolution.
3: That was an advancement. Saved my hands. (laughs)
2: Oh, yeah. It It was amazing. And... We could stay in those first couple of years for eight hours worth of stories. But if you move along, there was those Stelling days and Jeff could sell banjos. People wanted to buy them. He was out there doing it. And Greg built this whole entire shop. I'll tell some of this story instead of Greg
3: Um,
2: (laughs) because I'm seeing it from over here. So Greg builds this whole shop and and hires Tim Lorank and Kim Breedlove and Larry Breedlove and John Gerlog, okay these these people helped build Taylor guitars. Yeah. Because the whole Jeff thing felt. One day Jeff walked in and said, "You know what? You're out of here. I'm hiring all your employees because they start form two different companies." So it was a big it was a big rip off that we still have wounds about. theirs are deeper than mine. That's why I'm telling the story, right? And um, and. They had bought the house right across the street, so they just walked across the street and had nothing and went in their garage and they started building dulcimers and selling dulcimers, the two of them, starting all over again. And over at Taylor, we would call Jeff Moneybags Jeff because he, would, he had money, and we had no money. We had no money at all. Our business was not successful, right? And he'd have these guys from... Japan show up, go. We want buy banjo, you know, and that's like what they learned how to say when they landed. We want buy banjo, and they pull out their thousand dollars or whatever and buy a banjo right on the spot. Banjos that Greg and Janet and John Gerlog and who ended up my production manager and Tim Larank and yeah. Larry Breedlove, all these people made. And so one day, I'm really compressing the story, but one day Jeff's life got complicated marriage-wise, and he moved off to Virginia. Yep. He's still there today. Yep. And there are these employees that they couldn't hire, so I hired them. right? The people don't understand how inextricably entwined we are yeah. with the DNA of our companies. Yep. So these guys came to work kind of one at a time for Taylor and mm-hmm. stayed with us till retirement. They all retired from Taylor. Yeah, that, that's was, incredible. We, we
1: were, we're still intertwined, some, not like we used to be. But in those 30 days when we were both on Lester Avenue, we had keys to each other's shops because neither of us had all the machines we needed. So we'd share.
2: How many times would Cindy call you or vice versa and go, have you seen...
3: <laughs> and where's Bob? Have you seen is, is Greg home? No, Greg's not home. OK, I know where Bob is. <laughs> there, There's talking machinery 11 somewhere. 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's amazing. Oh, I wish I could have been there, because it's just such a remarkable time. Well, you know, it wasn't industry, remarkable you know. at the time. It's more remarkable yeah. now when you look back, because we became
2: successful. And so it, if we had fizzled out, it would have been an unremarkable time. So it's really interesting at what becomes remarkable. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all so relative. And I try and always remember that. Sure, um, yeah. But yes, it was, it was in the instrument world, it would be like being in Thomas Edison's workshop when nothing's going on. He's just pounding away at stuff. And these yeah. people that worked with us that we discovered, and we added more people and more people. And they started a whole business from the garage again. I mean, they had started over a bunch of times. It's yeah, a, that's true.
1: It's a good point Bob makes about it wasn't remarkable at the time because we had a passion. We couldn't not do it. We had to do it. But none of us knew for sure whether it was going to work. It was still like, are we nuts? And one of the guys that I have to give a lot of credit to when we first met him was already a very successful luthier, and that was John Larravee, Larravee mm-hmm. Guitars. Why he
2: helped me a lot. And
1: he befriended us. He was the first person that we ran into that really knew what he was doing, was already very successful, and encouraged us. I mean, for most of our early years, and before I built my first banjo, everybody I talked to that I said, I'm gonna build a banjo. You have no business doing that. What makes you think you can build a banjo? I got, you can't do that. You know, I, we got We got a constant parade of that kind of stuff. So to run into somebody like John Larrave who befriended us, encouraged us, and gave us hope that we could be successful.
2: There was a, we were in our uh, third year. We weren't able to sell anything. It was really hard. We just, we didn't know how to sell to stores. We took a guitar up to a little strip mall store and said, "How does this work? Well, how do we put our guitars in your store? Do you buy them? Yeah, we buy them. How much do you pay? Well, we pay fifty percent of the retail price. Oh my gosh, you know we sell a guitar for four hundred and fifty bucks and now we're finding out we get two twenty five for it how How are we going to do that and we it was just a heart sinking feeling and so then we decided that the $450 guitar was going to be a $550 guitar. And we had to make it a little bit nicer to do that and get a little bit more money. Maybe we'll up our production. And everything went wrong then. We had finish that never got hard. We had finish that cracked. We had disaster after disaster after disaster. Disasters. Just absolute disasters. Put you out of business disasters. And um, glue that didn't set up. It, things. And. Um, These guys contacted us once. It was Paul and Ed Rothschild, and was their name? Paul Rothschild was the producer of The Doors. Okay, and he was the musical director of the movie The Rose with Bette Midler, who played um, Janis Joplin in that old movie. It's a good. I recommend people watch that. It's really something. And uh, he was a successful record producer, and his brother Ed had been in some type of electronics sales. And they had this idea, this was a hippie time. So the companies that existed in the guitar world were like Alembic guitars. Those are the people that make guitars for the Grateful Dead, right? Yeah. Furman Sound Products. Jim Furman was uh, a uh, roadie for the Grateful Dead. And he started making power conditioners. And he was the first person to make good parametric equalizers. Mm-hmm. And then there was Oasis Guitars, Larrivée Guitars, Augustino Guitars. Augustino LaPrinzi had a company called LaPrinzi at the time. And when Gibson sold to Norlin and Fender sold to CBS, LaPrinzi was a up-and-coming company in New Jersey, and they sold to AMF. Huh. These sports and entertainment companies were buying guitar companies. Martin didn't sell, thank- thankfully, and. Um, And so they had this idea that we're going to pull these people together and make a boutique distribution company. So they pitched us, and we said no. And then we decided it'd be better to say yes, because we were getting nowhere at all. I mean, we couldn't sell a guitar, not a guitar. And every once in a while, someone would come in and buy a guitar off our wall and be like oh we're in business for another two weeks do the happy dance Have uh, you know twelve hundred dollars we're in business again and so john larrave was part of that little conglomeration and i met him at the first nam show that i went to in 1977. i came had to come back early from that show to get married and um and then our anniversary was on a summer nam show Every year, and that was the main show, and it looks like it's going to be the main show again. Yes, right. So every time we our anniversary had come up, I was gone at a NAMM show, and um, and John was super generous, and his guitars were so far ahead of our guitars and our ability. You look inside his guitars; you never seen such good craftsmanship in your life. And he taught us lots and lots and lots of things. And he saved my bacon a couple times. Yeah, just by shipping me something that if I didn't have, I'd go out of business. He's like, don't worry about me. I'll ship that. He'd ship it from Canada. And here some tuners would arrive. That One time I got so into my making tools, Schaller mini tuners had two screw tabs on them. And wow. so I made a jig to put in tuner holes and pre-drill the holes. I had like 10, 12 strings coming off the line. It was all my hopes and dreams were all banking on these, stringing up these guitars and getting money for them, shipping them to Rothschild. And I opened up my new batch of shallers, and they had one screw tab. Now I had six extra holes, and not one distributor in the United States had the old style that I'd pre-drilled the holes for. See, when I talk about disaster, these are disasters. (laughs) These are absolute disasters. So I called Johnny, and I'm like, do you have tuners like that? I do. I go, I need like 10 or 12 sets. He goes, I, I, I've got 15. And I, I go, I, I, well, I do have some other stuff pre-drilled. That'd be great. I go, could I get a couple? I'll send them all to you. I go, well, what about your guitars? We'll worry about my guitars
0: later. You know, here they come.
2: Those things right there saved our bacon.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of that in our industry, I think. Uh, well, at least back in the day, for sure. Like, yeah, People helping one another and trying to help each other through uh, difficult times. Greg, do you have any similar stories like that? I mean, that's pretty, pretty remarkable. Just the willingness to share,
1: willingness to share. Um, it's almost irrelevant story, but it's it's one of my fondest memories of John. When we first met him, it was at a Winter Nam show up when the Nam show was at the Disneyland Convention Center. And John said, "Yeah, before I started building guitars, I was an auto mechanic, and I worked on Volvos." And I bought my first new car. And I drove it, I picked picked it up, and I drove it in second gear over to the other town, 100 miles away and 100 miles back, so that it would be broken in right now. And that car lasted me almost 400,000 miles. And I thought, this is a guy that seems to know what he's doing.
2: (laughs) He's a real smart guy.
1: He's he's smart, but he's, John's John's a different sort of fellow, but he's a good fellow. He's still a cookie. always person. tell me he's a
0: magical little leprechaun.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> is, is
0: it his son that's still uh, building? Is yeah, that he's right? He's got two sons.
2: He's got Matt and he's got Johnny. Johnny's and right.
0: um, they both are
2: involved. One's in Canada and one's in, in uh, what am I trying to say?
0: What's that?
1: Oc- Oxnard.
0: Oxnard, yeah. Okay. Yeah. My and they come to the NAMS show every year. they know normally down. A couple of booths from us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's always their,
2: their work is remarkable. Great. They're wonderful people. Yeah, know they are. And Wendy, his wife, is the talent behind their inlays. Oh, is that right? And she does all the engraving, you know, and you've seen these court jesters and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And one time I was up there, I was young, and I go, I want to see how you do this. And she, so she put a neck and this big blank, you know, thing that needs to be engraved, and you'd think you'd be drawing on it and just really working on it. And it was one of her court jesters or, you know, um, fairies or something like that. So she puts it on the thing. She comes over with a graver, not a pencil, not anything. And then she's just like, I don't know why people are so interested in this all the time. Everybody <laughs> wants to see me do it. And, and then, boom, it's done.
0: <laughs> she's just freakishly good at it. That's amazing.
2: Another story
1: that Scott. got involves Larave also involves uh, Chuck Augsbury mm-hmm. from Ohm Banjo. We visited him and found out he was cutting his inlays with a pantograph. So I built a homemade pantograph and started making inlays with it and it worked okay, but it wasn't a whole lot better than hand cutting. And uh, then John said, uh, oh, I've got a pantograph now and I'm cutting inlays, it's working real good. So will you cut inlays for me? And he goes, I don't have time to make the patterns. He says, well, if I make the patterns, will you do it? He said, sure. So I made a whole set of patterns for all of our inlays. And for quite a few years, John cut all of our inlays.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, and he was an extremely helpful guy. We were just really fortunate to have a circle of friends like that.
0: It was a good era
2: at those times, you know. Stuart Mossman had a company that was growing, and it it failed. Um, I think Khan bought them. Khan bought that company, mm-hmm. and it failed after that. And um, the La Prinzi and the Augustino. I always give I always give Augie. I'd call him Augie Doggy. I'd give Augie Doggy, who was older than me and very successful, credit for my. My whole entire basis for my production, which was I was visiting his shop, and he had. uh, He worked by himself, and he was making four guitars a week or something crazy like that. Mm -hmm. And he had a guitar in this stage, and that stage, and that stage. And we were talking about things like making bridges on shapers, and and he goes, "Yeah, I do do the same thing." He showed me his jigs, and and I said. Like, when you do that, do you do a bunch of them? No, I make one. If I need one, I make one. I go, oh, I make 10, 20 at a time. Really actually thinking, like I was 16 years old, that I know more about it than my dad. You know what I mean? And I'm like, no, it's so much more efficient that way. You get the tool out. And I go, I make guitars in a batch of 10. He's like, "Ah, how's that working out for you? "Ah, (laughs) That's you good. And I was arguing with him. He just looked at me, and he said, Bob, what would you rather have? One done guitar or 10 half done guitars? And boom, that
0: was like, that changed my life. That's, that's I, don't, be... I don't want 10 half done guitars. I don't want anything half done. And that's going to be your first kind of foray into what is lean manufacturing, basically. Absolutely. That, that, that principle, is. right? Yeah. It's yeah. Just like, I want one
2: guitar. I came home. I came home from, it's like, uh, can I go home now? Mm-hmm. I, do I have to stay here with you for two more days? Because I want to go home and make one guitar. <laughs> and get it done because I could really use the money for one guitar right now 10 half-done guitars are getting me nothing I got nothing for 10 half-done guitars and so then I started making guitars one at a time and now we make a thousand guitars a day right now and so what would you rather have a thousand done guitars or a million half-done guitars you know and (laughs) i take a thousand done ones and and so um these people they taught us a lot and it was a it was a golden time. And a few people persisted and got all the way through. But you have guys like Collings Guitars or Richard Hoover at Santa Cruz Mm Guitars. James Goodall, still a guitar maker. Michael Gurion was a a guy from those fantastic guitar company. And he ended up not making guitars, but making guitar parts that a lot of us relied on for a long time. Mm -hmm. Then there's characters like Chuck Erickson, the Duke of Pearl Mm -hmm. That's invented our whole pearl processing yeah. industry. Yeah. You know? yeah.
1: Yeah. I learned I learned how to do inlays from Chuck. Uh, we heard that there was this guy up in Van Nuys that had Shell that was already ground flat, and I made the pilgrimage up to him, and he was on Lull Street in Van Nuys, and Lull Street is one of those streets. It's got two-block sections all the way at, across Van Nuys. It took me half the day to find him found him and I'd been cutting inlays by putting a piece of shell in the vise and just kind of going like this with the jeweler saw. And then I got into the shop and the little board that you use with the little hole in it and you're putting the patterns on the inlays or the shell to cut and I could see what he was doing. He never actually said, here's how you do it and showed me. I just saw the remnants of him having done it. And from that moment on, I knew how to cut inlays. So. Well, he didn't have to show me. That's where I learned how it's from Chuck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, interesting story about building one at a time. You know, Bob and I had kind of gotten into that, and the first time I got to go to the Asia conference, mm-hmm. um, a bunch of us went to dinner, and this is a pretty special. The Association
2: thing. of Stringed Instrument, Instrument Artisans. Artisans. That's what Asia. It's an acronym. Okay. It, it, it wasn't we were in in Asia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a it was guitar, makers, Martin guitars. guitar
1: makers group, professional guitar makers. We went to dinner and it was Bob and Bill Collins and John Larravee and Richard Hoover and I don't know who else, Michael Guriam is probably at the table, and this voice over at the corner of the table, somebody I didn't know, goes, Bob, how do you pace field guitars? It's so hard for me to pace field guitars. Um, And Bob looks over and says, Jim, I do one at a time. (laughs) And Jim goes, oh, I can't do that.
2: And he still can't do that. He's talking about James Olson. But James Olson is, I think, the single most successful guitar builder that works alone alive today. He does
1: extremely good. But he builds a batch of like 40 guitars a year, all in one batch.
2: I just talked to him recently, and he's got a place in... Phoenix, Scottsdale that he goes to for the winter, and that's where he recuperates all of his bad shoulder and his bad back and everything like that. And he's uh, a few years older than me, but here's a guy on his, his um, best years, he was making 75 guitars a year by himself, wow. and now he still makes about 40, but what you have to understand is his guitars start at $25,000, and they go to 50, and people line up to get them, and there's quite a story on how that became, but that's an amazing story. But people want that guitar. They're great guitars, they pay. So imagine, he's been very successful. I don't know anybody like him. Wow. And oh, you know, he's like, he'll call me and tell me if he's from Minnesota, you know. And, oh, there I go. I'm boasting again, telling you about the router I made. <laughs> I'm sure you're not interested, but maybe I'll tell you
0: anyway.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> he, he's really a sweetheart.
0: <laughs> I love it. I have one more question, and then I've got a few from, there from the audience as well that I'm going to read out. But um, one of the things that I love about the both of you, and I've had the pleasure of kind of working with you and you know, representing your brand for a number of years before I came to the States, but um, you both got a way of like, pushing the boundaries of what your respective instruments are supposed to be by tradition, right? Greg, uh, always pushing the limits on kind of not everything's maple with a bronze tone ring. You've got the Eagle 2 and the White Lotus and all these different experimental things which have worked really well. Bob, expression system, an NT neck system. I remember the first time I saw that and it was it was bizarre. And someone just reached inside the sound hole and Unscrewed and the neck came right off an acoustic guitar and we always went what is going on? Mm-hmm. What is the desire for the two of you to, to kind of push those boundaries and do it? Just completely different to, to really how it's been done before
1: Well, it's a Few principles I think You've got to have some concept of making tomorrow better than today today better than yesterday You got to at least have that intention um, doesn't mean you always achieve it. Um, and it's, I've always had the feeling that if you want to achieve something and have success, you gotta be willing to reach for it and look for every possible solution because you don't know which one's the one that's gonna work. And you gotta do everything you can to, to, to provide what your customers need and it isn't that I have any other magical formula beyond that, I just have this absolute need to keep reaching and finding every rock I can look under for a new solution. Might be a new product, might be a new process, might be a new way of promoting or marketing. Um, my my actual secret weapon for marketing is sitting right next to me.
0: There you go. And, and sometime inlay designer, I remember yeah. that as well.
1: She designed the Maple Blossom. That's right.
0: Yeah. Bob, what about you?
1: Well,
2: music is always changing. Musical instruments need to change. Um, Manufacturing techniques need to change. Otherwise, you stagnate. Your costs rise. Um, Early on, I spent so much time being poor as a church mouse that I made a second goal. One was to be able to build guitars for a living. But the next goal was to not be ashamed that I'm a guitar builder, because I wouldn't be able to, you know, I'd have to make an excuse how freaking poor I was, you know? And so I made a goal to try and make a a factory that where people were working on guitars, they could have a career, they could earn money, that, that when it was all done, that you, you, you can easily make a guitar and spend more money making it than you can sell it for. Mm-hmm. So to actually make a guitar with a profit margin is hard. And that's served me really well. Um, I have a philosophy. I say invest in the inevitable. It's inevitable that music's going to change. It's inevitable that costs are going to go up. It's inevitable that um, natural materials will become more scarce, which is why we use... We always introduce different woods. I mean, we're making tons of guitars now out of urban woods, cut down from city streets. We're so quite successful at that. We have our first four-piece top prototypes made because spruce is getting scarce, and you're going to have to put more pieces on there. Well, done well, you can't even tell. But people are like, four-piece, you know, the whole guitar world. will Four-piece top, what's the world coming to? Well, the world's coming to this version of how you make guitars. That's what it's coming to, you know. And in the early days, I've always had just, I'm just inspired to improve it. But now I feel like it's my responsibility to make it okay for other makers to do it too. So we... Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that I just said a moment ago, we make a 1,000 guitars a day. That's a big responsibility in the industry. Yeah. And what are you going to do with that? If you're lucky enough and fortunate enough that that happened to you, you have to lead the way. Yeah. And you have to be able to go, it's okay to have stripy wood in your ebony. We're going to do it. I like the handy's deep thought from Saturday Night Live a long time ago, which is like... If God lives inside of us, I hope he likes enchiladas, because that's what he's getting.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and you know, that I, I thought of that and chuckled when I was sitting in Cameroon nine years ago, and the suppliers were telling me, there's, there's, only, there's no black wood really left. There's wood that's got stripes in it. And I go, okay, well, I'll buy it. And, and they said, well, sir, you can't sell that. Nobody can sell that. I go, well, People won't accept it. I go, well, now they will because I'm in charge and that's what we're using, mm-hmm. right? That's what you're getting. And it yeah. turns out people love it, right? Yeah. And so you have a responsibility to evolve the world. It's inevitable that it's going to happen. Invest in it. Yeah. in it. Find out what's inevitable and invest, right? Because things are going to happen. And to sit there and think that, that the best work happened 100 years ago, it's foolish to think. Yeah. It's just foolish to think. So that's my philosophy, which has developed over years. I didn't have that philosophy when I was nineteen. I just wanted to get the guitar together and and sell it so that I could do it again. You know you, when you start out, actually, even today, you know, I was just trying to avoid having to get a job, and that required selling a guitar.
1: Yeah.
2: right? You can only save so many of them for yourself. Give <laughs> minutes, so many to your friends before you have to go be something else but i didn't have any other choice and so i think that um um, as i I also believe in the power of the manufacturer what a lot of people might not know and maybe especially people that listen to the daring podcast might be more strictly acoustic players or more Mm -hmm. traditional music players a, a higher percentage of that there when taylor sold guitars no, but when we started out for the first five, six, seven years, no acoustic guitar players bought our guitars. Mm-hmm. They didn't want them. Nobody wanted our guitars. We sold to the electric guitar world, because you could play them. And so electric players would come up and go, you know what? I've always wanted to play an acoustic guitar. It was almost like a confessional, you know? But I've never had one that I could play till now. Is
0: that because you're talking left-hand like, play it, or fretting hand play? That's it right. To, guitars, yeah.
2: you know, guitars, the, the party was over four frets up the neck. You, yeah. you couldn't really play higher than that. It was just too hard. Yeah. And so if I take 50 years of that, I can see how Taylor, by the changes we made, Blended electric guitar playing talent into acoustic guitar playing talent and now look at the way people play guitar You didn't see in the 70s somebody putting a capo on a Stratocaster on the fourth fret and strumming singing songwriter songs And you didn't see somebody put an acoustic guitar into a pedal board this wide and play effects and That type of thing so us changing the guitar helped change music And I know that daring, changing their banjos and giving different tones helped change music. And that's our part of the ecosystem, is to give somebody something that they didn't even know that they
1: wanted. That's where our crossfire came from. Mm -hmm. I kept running into professional banjo players that were on stage performing with an electric guitar. Well, why won't you play the banjo? Well, it won't play loud enough with the band without feeding back. I kept running into that. So I thought, well, I better develop an instrument that can handle that. And that's what the Crossfire came out. When we brought it to the first name show, we were laughed at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you kidding, you know? Who, what makes you think anybody's going to buy that? Well, when people like Bela Flex started playing it, and Diamond Rio and people like that. Roy um, Clark as well. Mm-hmm. well and, and,
2: you know, if you think here's, here's a way to think about it someone says do you play guitar and you say yeah i play guitar they don't have a preconceived notion of what that means yeah. you you could play heavy metal you could play jazz you could play folk you could play country you could play you know Keith Richards rolling stones you could play tap and bop and harmonics you could play anything and they call you a guitar player you could strum along in a children's class, singing children's songs to your guitar player. Now, for the longest time, and it's changing, thanks to Deering, thanks to Jamie, thanks to Greg and Janet, and I get in on this every time I get a chance to talk about it. People come up and say, do you play banjo? No, I don't play banjo. Because they think if they don't play Earl Scruggs style, (laughs) three finger, Scruggs style picking, or they don't frail, then they don't play banjo. Mm -hmm. Well, you can take a flat pick and make chords on a banjo and sing a song, and you know what that's called? That's called I Play the Banjo. So the the poor banjo has been confined in kind of like two versions you can do it, otherwise you're not a banjo player. But now you see banjo on, they make a six-string banjo, people get banjo sound, Mm -hmm. playing it with guitar, tuning, right? And so that song is great, and banjo, you find it more and more. And more and more in in music, and then you have some instrumentalists like the Dixie Chicks who just broke the fact that banjo had become illegal in Nashville for some years, and they're like, "No, it's legal again. We're playing it." And I hope you like what you're getting because that's what you're getting, right? And so, and next thing you know, Rod Stewart's got banjo in a band, you know, and so you can go on and on and on. But I, I would encourage people when you think about banjo is you could think about it like a guitar there's a thousand ways to play a guitar and still be a guitar player but why has why have people decided I don't play banjo I can't play banjo and they're thinking of most people are thinking of shrug style mm -hmm. they're thinking of one way to play a banjo because most people in the general world don't really know what frailing banjo is in, in that greater world right it's a smaller world that even knows that so the different tones they make, the different styles of banjos that, that Daring makes. This is turning out to be a good Daring commercial. Um, yeah, right. yeah. Hey, um, I'm, I'm not saying anything. You yeah, you're, you're being <laughs> quiet. You're like, hey, I'm running over. Let him keep going. You know. Um, anyways, I think that uh, I would encourage people to pick up a banjo and sing children's songs on them. And play your favorite you know, pop song that's on the radio. If you can strum it and sing along with it, guess what? You're playing the banjo. Yeah. Don't let anyone tell you that you don't know how to play the banjo.
1: Our first uh, gold record that we got from a record company was from Joe Santriani playing one of our 12 strings on his album. Well,
0: there you go. <laughs> There's a video of him. I think he did an MTV Unplugged playing, playing a, uh, one of our banjos. It's pretty cool, yeah. yeah, Amazing, amazing. Well, um, if you've got a couple more minutes, we're going to do just a few questions I've got here from, uh, from the audience, if you don't mind. Um, this can apply to both of you. Does one person make an instrument from start to finish, and how long does it take to build one? I think we're talking about modern day, which... Yeah. into the Taylor
2: factory, no. One person does not make a guitar from start to finish. Uh, there are many hands on it, and, the, um, and there's two ways we express the time in a banjo. One is what we call touch time. Yeah. How many hours does it take to make a, banjo, uh, uh, make a guitar? Yep. And a baby tailor takes us 1.8 hours to make, and a presentation takes us 25 hours to make of touch time. Now, then there's the elapsed time, which is generally about a week Okay. after you've bought wood two years in advance. Right. Yeah, <laughs> after you
1: bought wood way in advance. And we have a lot of hands touch our banjos. There's no one person makes the banjo. Um, and our touch time on the good times is about three man hours mm-hmm. and for our high end band it runs between 20 and 30 hours mm-hmm. Lapse time on the good times week and a half um, two, a little over two weeks for the high end but some of our real high end takes a little longer
2: we make a baby Taylor guitar in less time than we make a guitar case wow that's a that's staggering statistic that just makes statistic. you yeah. realize that a good guitar case is a good deal because they're not really worth a lot of money, but they take a
0: lot of work to make. Well, cases are a whole different topic that we could get into. Mm. That's, yeah, People yeah. people really overlook the, the case mm. thing and what goes into that. Yeah. There's
1: exceptions to the rule for us. I just finished a couple of custom banjos. One made on the theme of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and the other one based on the, the clipper ship, the Cutty Sark. And I probably had 300 hours in each of those and lapse time was probably three and a half years on each of them.
2: And that
0: doesn't count the study time he does to make the inlays right. I'm pretty sure you visited the Cadizac in London, right, for that one? Pardon? You visited the Cadizac yeah, in London.
1: Yeah, i to visit the museum. Yeah, uh, which is a good question. He's one of
0: the great inlay artists of our time. I'm not. He is. I beg to differ. I agree with that statement, but I don't necessarily disagree with the fact that you're not. You, you, when we did our, <laughs> Was it our
2: 35th anniversary? When we yeah. did our
0: 35th anniversary, yeah. I'm like, Greg, I'm out of ideas. Can you design our inlay
2: for us? Yeah. And like, he goes home and scribbles and comes up with the most beautiful inlay. He goes, you can use it under one condition that we can use it for our 35th anniversary banjo, too. Mm-hmm. And so people should know that 35th anniversary Taylor and Daring have the same inlay pattern on them, And um, Greg designed them, and he did
0: it in a snap, and they're beautiful. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Uh, A customer did ask about the uh, the sock. He said, last time he spoke to you, you were going to do a cutty sock commission, and I'm wondering if you've completed it and if you are happy with the results.
1: It turned out to be a beautiful banjo. Customer loves it. Yeah, Had an interesting experience. I did a practice resonator sitting at my desk, working on this resonator. It's got like 90 pieces of wood in the inlay. And I got seasick, sitting at my desk on dry land, working on the cutty Sark. Whoa. Just up and down, up and down, up and down. Never had that happen to me before.
2: The next time he makes a cutty Sark, he's going to charge $30,000 and a bottle of Remmy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> All right, we've got one from uh, Steven. I like this question. For both Bob and Greg. Hypothetical, um, you can only have one guitar or banjo for the rest of your life. What model from your lineups would you pick and why? That's a great question. I like that question.
1: Well, I'm playing almost every day the model that I would pick for the rest of my life, and that's my White Oak long neck Vega. And uh, White Oak is... My banjo. And
3: that's a 12-inch drum. The one, that
1: the one I like the best. It's got a 12-inch white oak drum. Love it, love it, love
0: it. There you go, Bob. What about you?
2: If I had to have one, I would probably pick. Um, I'd probably pick an
1: 814
2: CE.
0: That's a great guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Now the guitar that I play
0: I was gonna I was gonna reverse those I questions, yeah.
1: <laughs> when Bob when Taylor guitarist was still next door to During Banjo Company, Bob let me build a few guitars in his shop. And I have a custom set of basically nine hundred guitars with an ab top. I've got a dreadnought, a jumbo tall string and a grand concert and uh play the 12 string in the grand concert and it'll get played a lot, but that dreadnought has been my chief guitar for 35 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. 40 years. Wow. And it still will always be.
2: I have a. Is my banjo a deluxe? Is that it's mahogany diamonds oh. deluxe? Early one. Early one. And I'm, I'm happy with that banjo. I love that banjo.
1: Yeah.
2: And um, I kind of like. When you get time into something, there's, there's something about it, too. Yeah, we, know, we have a lot of guitar players that, a lot of guitar customers that are, they're guitar hounds. They buy a guitar, they sell a guitar, they buy a guitar, sell a guitar, trade this guitar, get another guitar. And I've been trying to tell people, do that all you want, but get one and keep it yeah. for your whole life. Because something happens to musical instruments at your 10, 12, 15, 20. They get better. They actually really do get better. It's remarkable how much better they get, and no one should cheat themselves out of eventually owning a 20, 30, 40-year-old guitar.
1: I kind of have this special guitar. When Taylor was still next door to us, I had a 62 D18 Martin. And when Bob would build a new model or do some improvement, he'd bring it over and we'd A-B him. And his first A10 was the first one that clearly beat my D18. Ah. So I built a 10 sold my D18. The and one then that somebody stole that, that eight tens. Someday that one'll come back. All my tailors have the Deering logo on the back of the pig head.
2: That's cool. Although I must say a good D eighteen.
1: Whew. It was a good, it's a good guitar. guitar.
2: You can't go wrong. When you when you hear, you know, Ron Block play his D eighteen on any Allison Krauss or Union Station, you just hear that guitar. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's a good guitar. And a good player.
1: Yeah i was I had a problem with my d eighteen it was a great guitar, and I just loved having a martin. What I really wanted was the d twenty eight couldn't afford it so the a10 was my first rosewood guitar
0: got to build one yeah. that's the way around it mm-hmm. <laughs> well we're about uh we're a little over time, but I think that was awesome um, one final question bob you 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 know um made a few moves lately in, in Taylor, like the, the employee ownership uh, side of things and Andy powers kind of taking up the reins. Uh, where does Taylor go from here? We have, um,
2: two or three lifetimes worth of ideas, one lifetime to get them done. Our lifetime is extended pretty well through our employee ownership and Andy's, um, better guitars, different materials, I spend, I'm going to tell people I spend the bulk of my time at Taylor Guitars arranging where we're going to get wood. What wood we're going to use, how we're going to get it, and so that Andy can concentrate on other things. And uh, from Africa to Hawaii to Fiji to Los Angeles to the Pacific Northwest, Hawaii, um, Alaska, Canada. All these woods come in from everywhere. I like wood better than synthetics. And there's a lot of woods that can make guitars. So where Taylor goes from here is there's so many kinds of guitars that we can make um, that we feel we know how to make. Andy's main, Andy's an incredible guitar maker. But what he does, what his real jam is, what he really, really does is archtop guitars and Mm -hmm. i'm not talking about electric archtops i'm talking about acoustic archtops like 1920s epiphones Mm -hmm. where you just you strap one of those on you're you're a foot taller just by holding it and their guitars that i mean just think of mother Maybelle carter she played bluegrass on an archtop guitar and it's all turned into flat top but that's a style of guitar that could come back and needs to come back but they're hard to make and it'll probably take someone like us to do a good job with it so there's that um we we will foray into electric guitars again we the, the last time we did it they were okay but people didn't buy them so not buying them yeah someone will go well, didn't you make electric guitars once what happened well nobody bought them you know <laughs> so we'll do it again we'll do, and i think we'll we've got some great stuff going and then we're in San Diego. For all of you who don't know, we throw rock that direction and we hit Mexico. And from there south, there's ethnic guitars that Mexican music is played on, Brazilian music is played on, and the Latino community in the United States is
0: huge.
2: And there's five or six kinds of guitars that they play that we don't make.
0: Hmm. And that's, we could. That's interesting. Yeah. There's
2: so there's s- such a world out there that is so beyond a flat top steel string guitar that plays American music. And we know about those guitars. They're just they're just waiting, yeah. waiting for someone to tackle them.
0: That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, we wish you all the best, and thank you. Please come back and visit us, Greg. Any final words of wisdom? before we head out here?
1: Well, if I had had my greatest wish come true, it would be that every guitar player would also play a banjo. (laughs) (laughs) They don't have to quit playing their guitar, but if they would also play a banjo, the world would be a better place, and we would be busy. (laughs) That
0: would
1: keep us busy.
0: Yes, we would. Yes, we would. Well, thank you, uh, Bob, for coming down today. It's awesome. I hope My we can pleasure. do it again uh, sometime. But Happy uh, to do it. Greg and Janet, thank you, and Jamie's sitting off the side there. You to wave. You put your hand There you go.
2: That's Jamie. And, and thank you to Greg and Janet for a lifelong friendship. Yeah, thank you, You guys should know that every year they make a a um, cheesecake or a cream cheese pie and uh. they buy our house and bring it over. We have dinner together. We catch up. There's sometimes. Well, before they started going to Baja with us, sometimes that would be the once-a-year time that we would spend. Now we see each other a lot more often, which is really fun. But it's great to have lifetime
0: friendships in an industry. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. And yes, the cheesecakes are remarkable as well. This is now the second Deering Live episode where I've uh, spoken and given high praise to Janet's (laughs) baking.
2: Yeah, there, there are people that, you know, they'll show up and they go, I got on the list. What list? The cheesecake list. Oh, yeah. I got on the list. I'm like, how'd you do it?
1: I don't know.
0: I got on it. <laughs> the, the cheesecake thing, the list yeah, is.
1: Janet st- makes about 45 <laughs> of those pies every Christmas. Yeah.
3: You're talking about production. That's production. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: When I, tell, when I tell the family, it's like, it's Christmas party time. And she goes, Oh, can't, you can bring home a cheesecake? I'm like, Yeah, probably. It's like, I'll let you know.
2: People out there, they don't understand
0: them. No, about they don't. But it's really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. We'll see you again next Thursday. And uh, thanks for tuning in. daringbanjos dot com slash daringlive for all of your episodes, including this one.